lover from the adulteress with her smooth words. And behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, at every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him. Now, again, I'm, I'm basically picking and choosing a few verses in here. But what's very clear is that what the forbidden woman is doing or this forbidden lover is doing is she makes the young man feel wanted. She makes the person feel desirable, right? She makes you feel like you've got something to offer and feel respected. And so this is not somebody who um, is not attractive to you. This is actually somebody who is attractive to you because they're giving you something that you actually really desire and long for, which is to be cherished, but that's one of the things that the forbidden lover does. Back to the middle of verse 13. And with bold face, she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices and today I've paid my vows. So now I've come out to meet you and seek you eagerly and I've found you. In other words, she's actively pursuing, right? Or the forbidden lover at times is actively pursuing us. Now we can either think in terms of a real person and that actually has happened, right? That does happen. It's probably happened to some of you in this room. But chances are there's more of a digital manifestation of what it looks like to be pursued these days, whether it's via ads or via Facebook or via certain Google searches that we can do. But again, we're told to beware and to be wary of the forbidden lover. Verse 16, I've spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I've perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. In other words, he's going to be gone buying goods for a long time. At full moon, he will come home with much seductive speech. She persuades him with her smooth talk. She compels him. She's persuasive, right? She's flattering. She's compelling. Her rhetoric is strong, right? right? This, this is not somebody um, with uh, bad hygiene, right? This is somebody who really does a good job of finding out what it is in our heart of hearts that we deeply desire and tries to give us what it is that we desire through persuasive language or flattery. She's compelling. Verse 22, all at once he follows her. In other words, his self-control is gone and he follows as an ox goes to the slaughter or a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver as a bird rushes into a snare he does not know that it will cost him his life. See, the forbidden lover ultimately will destroy. The forbidden lover will ultimately lead you into slavery, into a snare, into addiction. Verse 24, and now, O sons, and again, I would say daughters as well, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim she has laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng, right? In other words, it's not just sort of weak, frail, bumbling people who lack discipline that fall into her snare. It's mighty people who have fallen to her, right? Mighty people. It was JFK, right? It was Muhammad Ali. It was Princess Diana. It was Bill Clinton. It was Tiger Woods. It was General Petraeus. It was my grandfather, right? I mean, mighty people have fallen. Verse 27 her house is the way to Sheol, the grave, going down to the chambers of death, right? This is really heavy and a very, very heavy warning, and rightfully so, because ultimately the risk is great. We're told to beware of her. We're told to avoid her. And again, the question is, who is this? 
You can guess who some of these um, forbidden lovers are. It's anyone that's real or imaginary that you lust after or fantasize about, right? The forbidden lover is someone that you make a connection with on Facebook or at work or in some other area of your life who gives you something that you should only receive from your current or future spouse, right? And we're told to, to avoid this forbidden lover because of a few different very serious warnings. Number one, we're told that the encounter will eventually kill you. All sorts of language is used through the Proverbs. Again, there's multiple chapters that talk about this, but it talks about an ox being led to the slaughter, like this mighty and strong beast is killed by his or her waywardness. So it'll kill you. The encounter will eventually enslave you, like a bird rushing into a snare. One of the things that we know about certain types of addiction is that some types of addiction that aren't even uh, chemical like we typically think of, uh, other types of um, relational addiction are even more addictive than certain types of drugs that we think about when we think about addiction. These things will enslave you. The encounter will eventually poison you. In the end, she is as bitter as wormwood. Wormwood is a poisonous plant that was used uh, as poison to kill people in the ancient Near East. And again, if you don't notice here, the language of all of this is very, very serious. It's very, very heavy. The warnings are stark because death, slavery, poison. A final th- two things is that this, uh, this encounter with the forbidden level, lover will eventually hollow you. It says, at the end of your life, you groan. You know, my, fa- my grandfather, who was unfaithful to my grandmother and ended up leaving my grandmother for this other woman, told my dad on his deathbed, he basically said, I'm so sorry that I was unfaithful uh, to, to grand grand, my grandmother. And he said, I absolutely regret every bit of it. And I think, he said, I think that God has been punishing, my, punishing me for the rest of my life because I walked away from her. But he was, he was eaten up on the inside because of his infidelity, because he gave in to the forbidden lover. It hollowed him out. Finally, the encounter will eventually punish you. Can a man carry coals next to his chest and not be burned? So is he who goes in to his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. You know, one of the things that I do when I talk to uh, young men, especially when I was in youth ministry or when I talk to my own children, I talk about the forbidden lover in various ways in order to, uh, to try to communicate just the gravity of how our relationships will impact us, and in particular, how the forbidden lover, that relationship leads to death and leads to destruction, not only for you personally, but it also even sort of the ripples go out much more wide than that too. They affect the other person's family. They affect our society. They affect our culture. Does that make sense? The forbidden lover is filled with and reaps destruction, right? Beware the forbidden lover. The second thing, a relationship we see in Proverbs we're going to talk about today that we're told to beware is we're told to beware of the fool, right? And again, um, Mr. T used to say, I pity the fool all the time. And uh, we're, you know, we're also told in the New Testament not to call someone a fool, but we're also called to be discerning and, uh, and to recognize um, what it is that the fool looks like. Uh, verse 7 of Proverbs 14 says, stay away from fools, you won't find knowledge there. But again, the question is, who is the fool? There's really five words that's u- that are used in the Old Testament and in Proverbs to describe the, the fool. The first one is the simple fool, right? And the Hebrew word is pethi. And essentially, this is somebody who's vulnerable, they're young, they're immature, they're kind of harmless, there's still hope for them, right? In fact, the Proverbs also says that 
folly is bound up in the heart of a child. In other words, when we're young, we're immature, and so we sort of qualify uh, for this designation of the simple fool, somewhat harmless for whom there's still hope. Some of you guys know who Jar Jar Binks is um, from one of the Star Wars movies. He's one of the worst characters of all time in the Star Wars uh, franchise. But he's, a, he's kind of a sweet little character who just makes lots of trouble all over the place, right? And, and so we still have to beware of this fool. But this fool is the one who we also write the Proverbs to and give the Proverbs to because there's hope that they might grow out of this folly. The second fool that the Proverbs talks about is the silly fool. And uh, the Hebrew word is evel. I don't know if you guys have ever seen Dumb and Dumber. Um, Chris and I watched this about 20 years ago. And uh, we sat on a couch watching it on a VHS tape in the basement of the place we were living. And I chuckled and giggled the whole time. And Krista just sat there and her mouth was like a line. Not funny. I don't know why. But so anyway, yeah. So these two guys are goofballs, right? But, uh, but in the Proverbs, this, uh, again, this term for fools, evel. And it's, it means those people who have a bad temper, right? Who have a short fuse. It's someone who's careless with his or her speech. It's someone who trusts in themselves instead of heeding instruction. And so again, there's a little bit of hope for this fool. There's sort of a descending sort of categorization of these various fools. But again, this is a fool who is going to cause trouble and uh, blow through a million bucks uh, in no time and leave a, yeah, thank you. Anyway, I'm glad somebody got that. And leave a uh, suitcase full of IOU notes. Anyway, number three, this is the third fool that uh, the Proverbs talks about. This one, again, is a little more serious, but it's the unreasonable fool. And again, the Hebrew word here is kesil, kesil, and it literally means fat. And that's not the only reason I put Homer Simpson up there. But ultimately what it means is that someone is, that who is somewhat more uh, set in their foolishness. So it's not so much immaturity as much as, as someone who has sort of actively rejected God's wisdom and taken his own path that has led to his own demise. Ultimately, this fool cares more about immediate pleasure than about delayed gratification. Again, you can see the danger in relationship with Homer or with this fool. The, first, the fourth fool that we read about in the book of Proverbs is the mocking or the scornful fool. Now, I came back to Lampwick, if you guys remember him from Pinocchio, but you can just kind of see, you know, he's constantly smoking cigars and drinking beer and playing pool and playing hooky, and he sort of makes fun of anybody that's in authority and everything that is in authority over him, right? He's disdainful, contemptuous, spiteful, divisive, causing trouble, sort of breeding chaos wherever he goes. He, he lives on the path to destruction. The Hebrew word here is actually, it says lutz, L-O-O-T-S is the way that we might transliterate it. But it literally means someone who makes mouths or makes face. In other words, they scorn authority, right? They're derisive, right? They, they look at God and they go, who needs that? Or they look at people who are healthy people and they make fun of them. The final fool that we read about in the Proverbs is the wicked, right? Or the, the hardened fool. Now, you, you've heard about this guy because he showed up. Uh, he was Abigail's husband in the Old Testament. But um, this Hebrew word is Nabal. And this, we were using the joker as sort of the person uh, who is the hardened and the wicked fool. There's a Hebrew scholar um, named John Levinson of Harvard University who describes this fool as not a harmless person. This is not Jar Jar Binks who's causing trouble by accident, right? This is not a harmless simpleton, but rather a vicious, materialistic, egocentric misfit. It's someone who causes trouble intentionally and wreaks chaos on purpose. They're almost wicked. They're almost evil. The Proverbs really talks about each of these different categorizations of the fool. And ultimately, it says that fools despise wisdom and instruction, right? We know people like that. 
We know people that will not listen to good advice no matter what. Maybe, maybe we are uh, that way ourselves, right? These fools hate knowledge. They hate knowledge. Like they don't want to be confronted with truth or what is wise. These fools are complacent. They chatter or are careless with their speech. Again, something that I struggle with in particular. Fools lack sense. They're impatient. They lack self-control. Fools often disregard and despise their parents' advice. They trust in themselves. They exalt themselves. Again, they're mockers and they're scorners, right? Again, all this stuff sounds really, really hard and really harsh and sounds like it's super judgmental. It sounds like we're kind of going down a path that we think, man, Jesus wouldn't go down this path. This doesn't sound kind or loving at all. But again, the goal of this is to warn you and to tell you to be wary of who you associate with. And part of the reason that we're told to avoid and to beware the fool is because it's when we allow people who are in that category into our inner circles that we experience harm and destruction and chaos. Proverbs 13, 20 says, whoever walks with the wise will become wise. Whoever walks with fools will suffer harm, right? You had that friend in high school, right? You've, you've been there before, right? You got in trouble with the police because of that guy, right? So we know that harm uh, is associated with walking with people who are foolish. Uh, Proverbs 17, 12 says, let a man meet a she-bear robbed of her cubs rather than a fool in his folly. Again, being involved with a fool in his folly is dangerous. Uh, Proverbs 26, 10, like an archer who wounds everyone is one who hires a passing fool or drunkard. I think about Dick Cheney, not because he was foolish, but because he actually shot the person when he was hunting. You guys remember that story? Again, you read all of this and you, you look at the fool and you see that when you're involved in these relationships, when you allow them into your inner circle, that you're going to be harmed, you're going to be hurt, you're going to be led into a life of destruction and chaos. And again, the whole point of the Proverbs isn't to judge people who are foolish, right? But rather, it's to lead people to holistic restoration. And so the reason it's important that we actually do hear what the Proverbs has to say about these relationships is because the goal of the Proverbs is to help us to become as fully human as we possibly can be. It's like the Ten Commandments. You know, we look at the Ten Commandments, and you look at those, and you think, oh, man, it's another to-do list or another to-don't list. But ultimately, when you look at the Ten Commandments, you think, you know, that's actually the world that I want to live in. I want to live in a world where I don't have to worry about my things being stolen. I want to live in a world where I don't have to worry about anybody slandering me or gossiping me or lying about me. I want to live in a world where I don't have to worry about being murdered, right? And that's very much what the Proverbs is doing. The Proverbs is saying, ultimately that we want to help you become fully human. We want to help you become a holistically restored human being. And part of the way we do that is by avoiding these dangerous, uh, chaotic, and harmful relationships. Now, the good news is Proverbs also gives us lots of other relationships that we are told to pursue. And so we're going to look at two of those really quickly. Two of the healthy relationships we're told to pursue in the Proverbs uh, are ultimately to pursue the spouse or the wife of your youth, it says, And we're also told later uh, to pursue people who are ultimately godly friends. But look, we're going to look really quickly at pursuing your spouse. Now, again, the Bible has talked about all these different healthy relationships as well as the unhealthy ones. The healthy relationships it talks about are pursuing the wise, the righteous, the disciplined, even pursuing your father and mother. But again, we're going to focus on these two. So pursuing your spouse. Proverbs 5 Verses 15, 18, and 19 are the ones we're going to look at. And these are really in opposition to the forbidden lover. And so here's what we're told about pursuing your own spouse. 
We're told this, drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. To continue this analogy, it's easy to drink a little bit from here and a little bit from there, right? That's the culture that we live in, right? The forbidden lover is everywhere, again. And again, this is true whether you're a female or a male. And what happens is we drink a little bit here and we drink a little bit there and we get a little bit of this and we get a little bit of that and we think it's not gonna hurt anyone no one needs to know, but the truth is your heart knows, right? Uh, C.S. Lewis has this great quote where he says, every decision you make is making you a little bit more of an angel or a little bit more of a demon. In other words, it's every decision you make is changing your heart, right? Pursuing our romantic needs from our spouses, however, uh, requires intentionality. It requires work. It requires time. But in the end, it's our relationship with the uh, appropriate person that leads us to pure and clean relationship. He goes on to say, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. We're told to rejoice. This is a command. It's easy to dwell upon how our spouse has failed us. It's easy to dwell upon how they've hurt us, or it's easy to dwell upon their deficiencies, especially compared to someone else. To rejoice in our spouse requires intentionally dwelling on what is noble and good about them. To rejoice is to be active, praising them privately, praising them publicly, thanking God for them, and focusing on the good in them. Rejoice. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her beauty, that is a euphemism, people, there, but let her beauty fill you at all times with delight. We're not only to be enamored with her physical beauty, but also to be courageous enough to discover our spouse's internal beauty. Does that make sense? Like we're really quick to want to focus on external beauty, but we're scared to death of knowing someone as they really are. And frankly, we're scared to death of being known as we truly are. Don't forget that our greatest desire is to be known and loved, right? To be known and loved. Keller has a great quote from The Meaning of Marriage. I'm going to put it up on the screen. He says this, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear, but to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty that life can throw at us. What we deeply desire is to be known and loved. And again, pursuing the wife of your youth or pursuing your spouse is this active and intentional process. We're told to be intoxicated always in her love. Drink from the fountain of your wife. Be intoxicated with her love. On the one hand, the feeling of infatuation fades. We know that biologically. Actually, for about 18 months, there's a chemical that courses through your body that causes you to bond with someone else. That's why you have that feeling of infatuation. It makes you want to sort of give your whole life to them. And uh, that's true not only when you meet an appropriate person, but it's true, it can be true when you meet somebody who's inappropriate as well. That infatuation stage only lasts about 18 months, then those chemicals begin to go down. And so that's why, uh, you know, at about a year and a half, you start realizing that that person is human as well. But in committed relationships, when each spouse actively cherishes the other, there is a warmth and a depth that is far more meaningful and pure than a purely chemical reaction, Right? According to clinical psychologists, those moments of infatuation are, are like cotton candy. They're shallow and they're ultimately empty, whereas the warmth and depth of committed relationships are more like a well-balanced meal. They're substantive and pleasurable, and they're the product of an intentional 
connection. Therefore, we're told to cherish the spouse of our youth. Now, this is tricky because ultimately um, these young men are being talked to in the Proverbs and they're being told to sort of, you know, avoid the forbidden lover but pursue the correct one. This is hard for some of us in this room maybe who aren't in that relationship now. Maybe you're unmarried or maybe you hope to be married. But the truth is you can look to these principles all the same and you can save yourself not only from the forbidden woman or forbidden spouse, but you can save yourself for the true spouse who truly knows you and truly loves you as you are. The second relationship that we're told to pursue in the Proverbs, the good relationship, is we're told to seek godly relationships, godly friendships. And we're going to be jumping from Proverbs 11, 12, 18, 27. It's really all throughout the Proverbs. But I'm going to just really ask one question really quickly. Why are we told to pursue these godly friends? One, we're told that godly friends give good advice. Listen to Proverbs 12. The godly give good advice to their friends. The wicked lead them astray. Now, some of you have had friends before that aren't healthy friends, and they've given you really bad advice. Some of you have been privileged enough to have good friends, and they've given you great advice. I think I've told you guys uh, about 29 times that I've been part of this um, now 24-year accountability group with a group of four other guys. We all played soccer together at Covenant, but we all are committed believers. We're committed to our families and, and, uh, and ultimately seeking to walk and live life with one another. But every time we have a big decision in our lives, um, early on it was marriage, but it's also been child-rearing and job choices. We've sought the advice of these guys because we know that we love each other and we can trust one another. Good friends give good advice. Second reason we're told um, to receive uh, or to pursue these godly friends is because godly friends actually make you better, right? Again, one of the goals of the book of Proverbs is to make you fully human, and good godly friends do just that. As iron sharpens iron, a friend sharpens a friend, right? That's what Proverbs 27 says. Um, Sometimes that sharpening is, is challenging. Sometimes it's difficult to hear, but again, it makes you better. Uh, one time, a buddy of mine, Marshall Brock, and I were at a concert, and it was a David Wilcox concert. If anybody knows David Wilcox in here, and there were a bunch of our old friends that had come in from out of town to be at this concert, and so it was a little bit like a, you know, a little bit like a reunion. And uh, I was having a conversation with this person, and somebody else would walk up, and I'd talk to them, and you know, it was just this great time. Well, after the concert, uh, Marshall and I were driving back to wherever we were staying. And Marshall, in a really helpful way, said, you know what, Brian? He said, you have a really bad habit of talking to one person, and uh, you'll be in the middle of a conversation with them, and somebody else will come up, and you'll just turn, and you'll start talking to the other person, right? It took a lot of courage for him to tell me that, but ultimately, it was good that I could actually trust him to be honest with me about a failing that I had, and good relationships will fundamentally uh, make us healthier and better, better people. Good relationships also give counsel that is a relief that brings peace. Uh, Good relationships will allow us to feel heard and understood. Listen to Proverbs 27, verse 9. The heartfelt counsel of a friend is as sweet as perfume and incense. It's going to be good advice, but it's also going to be heartfelt counsel that ultimately is sweet, that helps us feel connected to, that helps us feel heard and understood by another. Godly friends are loyal. Proverbs 18 says, there are friends who destroy each other. Again, we've been with those friends in junior high and high school and maybe in college. There are friends who destroy each other, but a real friend sticks closer than a brother. A real friend is loyal. One of the things that we've learned over 24 years of being in this accountability group with this group of guys is um, we're not the Holy Spirit, right? For a long time, I thought that 
I was the Holy Spirit junior and that God had entrusted me with the ability to help all these guys change. And, uh, and the reality is the Holy Spirit's job is already taken and it's taken by him. And, uh, and ultimately what I do in my relationships with these guys is that I, I do call them on the carpet about things, but ultimately part of what I have said to each of them and part of what we've learned after 24 years is I'm just with you no matter what, right? You're gonna make bad decisions. You're not always gonna be a good father. You're not always gonna be a good husband. You're, you're gonna make bad business decisions, but I'm here for you. I'm loyal to you. I'm gonna stick it out with you. Godly friends are loyal. Finally, godly friends love enough to say difficult things. Proverbs 27 verse six says this, wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses, right? Enemies flatter, right? People who don't really love you are gonna flatter you and tell you what you want to hear, but godly friends are gonna tell you what you don't want to hear. Now, some of you have either read the Harry Potter books or seen the Harry Potter movies, and you know that um, the, the primary three sort of friends in that book are Ron, Hermione, and Harry, but you know there's some other characters that are buddies with them. One of them is a young man uh, named Neville Longbottom, which is a terrible last name. And, uh, but anyway... There is a scene in uh, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone where um, the three, Harry Potter and Hermione and Ron are going to sneak out again. And, uh, and Neville, who's actually their friend, basically confronts them and says, what are you guys doing? Every single time you leave Hogwarts, you leave the castle to go do your things and whatever, he said, the rest of us have to sit back here and we're the ones that have to deal with the chaos when you guys get in trouble. He calls them on the carpet. Now, eventually... Uh, they, they don't listen to him. They don't decide to follow his counsel. They go do their thing anyway. But at the end of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, Dumbledore is giving out these awards, and his final award is to Neville. And he stands up in the Great Hall, and he says to Neville, it takes a great deal of bravery to stand up to our enemies, but just as much to stand up to our friends. In other words, godly friends, by definition, are going to need to be brave enough and love you enough to tell you things that you don't want to hear. Right? They've got to be courageous enough to deal with you when you get mad at them for telling them, uh, for telling them something that they really need to know. Uh, there's a man um, named Henry Cloud, who's a counselor, who's written a book called Safe People. I'm going to read two of his quotes. Uh, first one is this. Every relationship has problems because every person has problems. And, and the place that our problems appear most glaringly is in our close relationships. The key is whether or not we can hear from others where we are wrong and accept their feedback without getting defensive. Time and again, the Bible says that someone who listens to feedback from others is wise, but someone who does not is a fool, right? Part of what makes a good friend a good friend is the willingness to stick your uh, neck into a place where you know you might get burned, right? And part of being a good friend is also being willing to hear that. Another quote by Cloud from Safe People. He says this, God uses people not only to nurture us, but, to, but also to open our eyes to sins, self, selfishness, and denial in us. Love also means saying, I hold this against you, as Jesus did when he confronted the churches. In other words, sometimes you have to say, hey, you hurt my feelings, or hey, you actually lied to me, or hey, you actually, I think, kind of slandered. Like sometimes we actually need to call a spade a spade. Being confronted on character issues isn't pleasant. It hurts our self-image, it humbles us, but it doesn't harm us. Loving confrontations protect us from our blindness and our self-destructiveness. Does that make sense? Godly friends do all of those things for us. Now, today is the Lord's Supper. So you can see tables around the room. There's tables with bread and wine on my right, your left. There's tables with bread and grape juice 
Uh, there's also um, gluten-free bread on this table over here. But as you look at these various tables with bread and wine, one of the things that you need to think about as you look at these tables is that these tables are a reminder. And they're fundamentally a reminder from Jesus. He's the one that told us to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper reminds us of two things. One, it reminds us that we're more sinful than we ever dared to imagine. Okay? We're more sinful than we ever dared to imagine. But secondly, we're also more loved than we ever dared to hope all at the same time. Right? We're more sinful than we dared to imagine. Uh, our sin was grave enough that it required the death of Jesus, right? But again, we're loved enough that, it, that Jesus was willing to pay that price. And so even as you think through this uh, little sermon on the Proverbs and you think about these relationships, some of you have automatically said, you know what, I've been I've been the forbidden lover, right? Or I've given in to the forbidden lover. The Lord's table is for you. It's a reminder that you're worse than you realize, but you're more loved than you could ever imagine. You know, some of you realize that you've been the fool, right? You've you've been harmful to other people. You've sown chaos, right? You've lost your temper. you've, You've slandered, you've gossiped, you've done all those things, but this table is for you, right? It's a reminder that you're more loved than you ever realized, right? You're more loved than you dared to hope. God loved you so much that he sent his son to live a perfect life and die on the cross for you. But your sin was also that bad. And so this meal today is a reminder again that you're loved by God, but that you're also deeply, deeply broken. And when you take this meal today, what this bread and wine signify is that God says to you in this meal, he says, you're forgiven, right? You're clean, right? You're beautiful to me. Your past record of failings, they're all, they've all been wiped away. In fact, they weren't just wiped away. They were placed upon my son, and I punished him in your place. And his righteousness has been exchanged for your guilt. His righteousness has been placed upon you. So God says in this meal of bread and wine, when I look at you, I see you as perfect. Right? That is good news. It's the gospel. Right? And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to invite you to dwell upon those truths. I want you to dwell upon the fact that you're more loved than you might have ever dared to believe. And I want you to dwell upon the fact that you're also more broken than you realize. And let me say this before I give the words of institution and remind you that this meal of bread and wine, it's only for people who recognize their brokenness. And it's only for people who are trusting in Christ alone for their salvation. And so if you haven't reached the point of being aware of your brokenness or being willing to trust in Christ alone, I would simply ask you to sit back and watch the people of God as they embrace um, that incredibly difficult truth uh, that they're broken and at the same time loved. Hear now the words of institution. They say this, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take a moment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for um, your word. We thank you for common sense. We thank you for wisdom. We thank you that you are a uh, divine oncologist who loves us enough. Um, to look into our minds and to look into our hearts 
um, and to show us um, where we have spiritual, uh, relational, psychological, emotional cancer, that you love us enough, that you're brave enough um, to show us where we're broken. Father, that you love us enough to do that, but more that you loved us enough to send your son Jesus um, to remove the sin and the brokenness and the rebellion from us. Father, I pray that as we prepare to receive this meal today of bread and wine, I pray that your voice would be the loudest voice to us. Father, I pray that your voice would drown out our voice. Uh, When our voice says there's no way you can love us, or there's no way that can be true, or there's no way you can forgive me, I pray that your voice declaring that we are righteous and clean would drown out our voice. Father, when Satan's voice enters into our head to say, Uh, that we've done it too many times, or that thing that we did was too big, it was too grave. Father, I pray that your voice would drown out the accuser's voice. And I pray that we would hear your voice telling us that you love us, that you've forgiven us, that we're clean, that we're righteous now and forevermore. Not because of uh, any great thing in us, but because of the magnitude of your son Jesus, his mercy and his grace. And so, Father, we come to this table today to take bread and to take wine in your son's name, amen. Receive now the benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and may he give you his peace, amen.